Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. Anyway, my, my guest tonight, once again, and delighted to have him back with us here in Paris, is David Thompson. David, welcome. Thank you. Very good. And to be uh, his new book, this is what, like number 45 in your series? I, I don't know. <laughs> you can't count? <laughs> I can't count, but I've given up this kind of Anyway, this is The Fatal Alliance, A Century of War on Film. And uh, kind of ironically, the book is out, and now we have a little bit of a, uh, a war in Gaza and the ongoing war in the Ukraine. Uh, so those stories are yet to be told. Uh, the uh, Much of what you're writing about uh, centers on the First World War. And... Um, I, I think you have a, you, you have a kind of a unique perspective from this. Those of us who are living here in Europe, even though obviously I'm an American, uh, have never really been as plugged into the to the impact of the First World War in, in so many levels on people living here in Europe. Uh, you're having lived in what we used to formerly call Europe, uh, Great Britain, uh, grew up in, in uh, with a lot of obviously that that knowledge and the everyday visibility of people who had been a part of that. And then having lived in America as long as you have, you have you have that going on. So I wanted to come to that, to that, but just before we get there, what brought about this book? What, what was the genesis of this book? Well, you know, I think it really began in a conversation with one of my sons, Nicholas. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know how it came up. But we both agreed that every time we had the opportunity to see Black Hawk down, <clears throat> even if it might be 20 minutes or so here or there on a television we happened to be passing, we could not resist it. And uh, it, we discovered that we had the same intense attraction to it as a kind of not just an entertainment but a ritual and we got talking about it and we we sort of realized that it was totally implausible that we should love the film because the two of us like you and probably like most of the people who might be listening to this hate war would would be terrified of being physically involved in it, disapprove of it in every possible way. And, and when we look at the world of this moment with Gaza, with Ukraine, maybe with Taiwan, mm -hmm. who knows? It may not be long. Uh, these things are just, they're sufficient to end civilization. And we hate war, and more or less everyone hates war. But Nicholas and I, you know. How old is Nicholas now? He's 33. Okay. Um, we get a huge kick out of this film. And even though we tell ourselves we hate what we're seeing, we watch it. Hey, David, I'm, just stop me for a second, because there may be people who have not seen it. Just give me a, a give us a brief oh, snapshot oh, yeah. of well, it's a Ridley Hawk Scott Down. film, and 
and the circumstances yeah, in the film. Black Hawk Down goes back to the late 1990s at a time when Somalia, this country in Africa that at that time at least, I would have had real difficulty locating on an unmarked map. British Somaliland. <laughs> well, it was British, it was Italian, you know. Uh, anyway, there was trouble in Somalia and the United Nations and America both thought that Al-Qaeda were at work there stirring up trouble and they sent in troops. And Black Hawk Down, based on an actual incident, is an account of a group of American soldiers who go into Mogadishu, the capital of Mogadishu, with the intent of extricating a couple of captives to interrogate them to find out what's going on. They go to Mogadishu by helicopter. A couple of the helicopters get shot down. And all of a sudden, you're in an immense crisis where these soldiers have to survive and they have to get out. So it, it, it's a film, at least three quarters of it is combat. And Sam Shepard plays the general in charge of the operation, but he's back at headquarters and he's getting messages of how it's going. And uh, it is one of the great combat films, <laughs> uh, I think. And as you say, it's a Ridley Scott film and Ridley Scott probably has done battle better and battle over many, many centuries. And of course he's out now with Napoleon. He loves to film combat. He does. Have you seen Napoleon? I have seen it. You have a comment? <laughs> I don't think it's very good. Okay. Um, I think that it's very muddled history. It's hard to follow. And I think that uh, Joaquin Phoenix is not nearly as outgoing and as charismatic and expressive as I think a Napoleon needs to be. It's got a lot of good things in it. It's got great battle scenes, as, as you would imagine. But I, I don't think it's anywhere near the quality of, say, Black Hawk Down, or even The Duelists, if you remember The Duelists. Harvey Keitel and uh, the Carradine Kid. And, you know, which really was his first film. Uh, and is a and Hannibal, which we saw together at a big theater in San Francisco. That's, that's right. He's got a... He's got a record of really good battle films. Anyway. I'm going to uh, go back, quickly go back to, to Nick because trying yeah. to think how old he was when you first watched this film because now you're an American well, citizen with a kid who's probably of draft age, God forbid. Was that running well, through I, your head I, while you are watching this? Uh, it probably was, yeah. I mean, I think we probably saw Black Hawk Down. At least I saw it with him. I probably saw it on my own first at a press screening or something. Mm -hmm. But I think we saw it together when he was probably no more than 10, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is a great age for battle films. And one of the points about my book is that, that, that there is an appeal in these films to the boy of us. And, and it may be a pressure that does not help the boy grow up. Mm -hmm. 
boyishness is a very weird part of war and how people are persuaded to enlist and go to war. Anyway, um, he is he is not soldier material, neither am I. Oh, nor am I. Neither are you. I, I got very close, but thank thank God they, they sent me home. Good. It's another good. story. So anyway. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, so that was the, the genesis of it. You talk about a film uh, by uh, Peter Jackson, which, uh, frankly, I had not been aware of. Now I've got to go endeavor to find it, uh, which was... Uh, they, they shall not. Grow. They shall not grow old. Uh, I, I, let's talk about that film because I think it so much centers on what you're writing in terms of uh, the Perfect. First World War and, and all the all the elements of people that saw it, the people that saw the victims afterward. Talk about that film. Why you love it so much? Well, this this grew out of a an, a wish to honor the history of the First World War, the Great War. Well, also, we had family in that war. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, what he did was gather together all the footage he could find, not of war, not of combat, because combat in the First World War was not very much filmed and not filmed very well. But it turned out that there was a lot of material of soldiers waiting for battle. And using that as the visual stream of the film, he added from a, another collection, enormous collection of vocal accounts of the war by men, almost entirely, um, saying what it felt like at the time, what it feels like in retrospect. And he put together this documentary. He cheated a bit. He 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 got all the film to run at sound speed. He colorized it. You know, he was doing things that you're not supposed to do to original documentary material. And it works. What it gives you is a real sense of the, the kind of man who went into that extraordinary war, not understanding it, not knowing what it was about or for. The First World War is this extraordinary event. Everyone within a few months goes to war and no one really knows why they're going to war. It's a model of the insanity that can generate war. And in my opinion, it is one of the greatest documentaries about what it is to be a soldier to be bored, to be afraid, to spend only moments in action, but to be part of an institution that is dedicated to killing people just like you. And, you know, the First World War is a turning point in the history of the world in that it suggests that civilians are just waiting for this responsibility to be thrust upon them where they become soldiers. Not like the soldiers from the 19th century and previous centuries who were sort of privateers and adventurers and very small armies. 
this is a large, enormous army. The volunteer army that Britain and all the other countries in the Great War raised, they were huge armies. And they were involved in battles of an extent and a damage that, that nobody had dreamed of being possible that time. It coincides, of course, with the development of many new ways of fighting, the machine gun. Machine gun <laughs> shapes the First World War in many ways. Long-range artillery, gas, tanks, and aircraft. It, it, the First World War is, is a testing ground for so many inventions that have never really been used in the same way with the same coordinated force in a battle. Aircraft for the first before. time. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, it, it, it it's this bizarre event where millions are killed. Uh, the damage to the French, the British, Germans, really affected the social order of those countries. I don't think France, a very high morale country, has ever really recovered from the Great War. Uh, I remember Bertrand Tavernier talking about that. Uh, and oh, we could talk about his his wonderful film *La Vie et Rien d'autre*, but yeah. we will come we will come to that. Yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> it's a moment where bravery, the glamour of war, the adventure, those things fall aside, and you see that war is a sort of industrial process that literally chews men up buries them in the mud and accomplishes hardly anything um and more or less that is the kind of potential for war that we face now so an event that in which film is another of the new inventions mm -hmm. um I found that very interesting to think about the impact <clears throat> on our ways of thinking and seeing things. And so, you know, I, I, I talked about the Great War a great deal, in part because I know that a lot of people have forgotten what happened in the Great War. America was not a, an immediate participant in the war uh, and, and the forgetfulness may be more intense here, but it changed the world. Absolutely changed the world. Well, you know, you talk about the French, a couple thoughts come to mind. Uh, Joseph Roth, in one of his essays on, on France, it was called A Report from a Parisian Paradise, suggests that the wine that we might be drinking, champagne, from the Somme and these battlefields in, in, in France, that the vines have penetrated. There's so much blood soaked into that soil that we're mm -hmm. almost drinking the blood of the soldiers that died in 1914 and 19. I mean, he says it much more vividly and beautifully than I just articulated it. You said it very well. And, and I think if you've ever been to the battlefields, if you've gone even to the, this, the, the beaches of D-Day, you do have this extraordinary <clears throat> sense of how it literally got into the soil, got mm -hmm. into the shape of the land. And, you know, for four years, huge armies moved back and forth, frontal assaults, infantry attacks that gained a few hundred yards 
and then in a, a couple of weeks' time, that game was reversed. And, and in many of those battlefields, terrible damage was done, huge losses of life, and the accomplishment, the gain in land, was a mile or two over four years. Mm. Extraordinary thing. And, and of course, if you go to those battlefields, you, you can easily still stumble on relics, helmets, mm -hmm. bullets in the ground. Occasionally an unexploded bomb will be found, that kind of thing. Well, you go back and look, uh, I want to talk about French films, but in, in, in Chariots of Fire, there's a scene where Abrams uh, arrives uh, on campus or in, in the village at Cambridge, and one of the guys that picks up his bag is missing a leg. Another guy is missing missing an arm. It's a very, very quick scene, but automatically you begin to establish what the residue of that. Then I, go, I think the first film I ever saw... Another, I'm sorry. I mean, another aspect of the story we're talking about, because... It was during the Great War that medicine and surgery, mm. although very primitive, developed quickly. So that after the First World War, <clears throat> you got something that really hadn't obtained in previous wars. In previous wars, people were killed. They were beyond medical rescue. But in the First World War, prosthetic limbs, reconstructed faces not very well reconstructed mm -hmm. but the the damaged people some of them walked around for years afterwards and uh, I, I think that was a great lesson for other people in in what had been going on i, I just thought the first film i saw on that subject was paths of glory uh, the briner production with kirk douglas george mccready and uh you know, Manjo, who was, you know, yeah. and where he refuses to obey an order to take these men out to die. Uh, and we talk about that kind of kind of briefly, that that mentality, that the kind of royalty and nobility and how they had they were scornful of the general public. Well, it, it, it's a it's a film about the gulf between the the working soldier and the officer class, because a couple of officers plan an attack. They sort of know that the assault is gonna be like all the others. It will accomplish very little. But because the attack fails, technically, they have to find scapegoats. So three men are court-martialed, almost an immediate trial, and they are then executed. And Kirk Douglas is the officer who has tried to lead the assault and then becomes the defense counsel for the three men accused. And it, it's, it's one of Kubrick's coldest, darkest films in its view of human nature. I mean, Kubrick was not, he was not really a fan of the human race, if you know what I mean. And um, <clears throat> particularly McCready and Monjou are probably some of the most hateful officers ever put on this on the screen. And I would say, generally speaking, the Great War was the war, the battle, that encouraged ordinary people to understand that the officers in charge of them were not noble, were not valiant, were not intelligent. They were greedy, vain, ambitious and they made mistakes 
that are counted in the lives of the soldiers they commanded. Uh, so the gulf, the sort of social political gulf between men and officers becomes much more pronounced during the Great War. Well, we see it also in, in 1939 in La Grande Illusion de, de Renoir, where yeah. we see that uh, <clears throat> von Stroheim and, and Pierre Frenet, two members of the officer class and a ruling class in both Germany and in France, uh, are, have much more in common than they do with the people from their of the lower classes from their countries. Uh, but uh, and then also you begin to see in the relationship between Rosenthal and and Gabin uh, to to you know a Jew and a Gentile who did yeah. not really come together so much. Uh, and, and Renoir was on to what was going on there. That's a, to me, it's, it's a beautiful film. It's one of the great war films without that. But we, we mentioned Tavernier, and uh, I, I, I can love La Vie et Rien d'autre, Life and Nothing But, with the remarkable Philippe Noiret, who's one of my, my favorite actors. Yep. Talk about that film and the job that he has at the end of this war of counting up these bodies. Talk a little bit about this film. Well, um, clarity. <clears throat> no one really knew how many people had been killed. There were many people who were assumed to be dead, but bodies had not been found because the bodies had been blown apart, because the bodies had been ground into the mud. They were not easily traceable. And in Life and Nothing But, Noiré plays an officer whose job, responsibility, is to attempt to track down the last relics left by the dead could be a whole body, but it could just be buttons on a uniform, tiny things. And he's a career soldier, but you feel all through the film that the man's natural vigor and optimism are just being gradually sapped by the job he has and by the implications about how many people were destroyed destroyed and how many of those who were destroyed leave no grave no um no real memorial because the the way in which people are valued is suddenly revealed as cynical desperate industrial uh, the the men who fight are slaves they are not individuals they're not known people that's another of the great lessons of war, that we don't really matter. Another regiment can come up next week and try to do what we failed to do this week. And in a way, that's the, the pattern of what happened in the Great War. Yeah, and the uh, <clears throat> no, I just find that uh, Noiri's performance is uh, just magnificent. He so much that he can do with a gesture, or a shrug of the shoulder, uh, the acceptance of it, the and the relationship that he ultimately has with Sabine Azima. Uh, I think it's one of one of great great films. Yeah, one of Bertrand's great 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 films uh, among many. That I'm a big fan of his work. Yeah. So let's kind of jump ahead a little bit to the Second World War. Yeah, and you know, I, I have you to thank for my uh, my addiction to Michael Powell, yeah. uh, and Colonel Blimp, 
and that remarkable performance by Anton Volbrook, who's already fabulous as Lermont. Well, I think Lermontov came afterward. But yeah. uh, talk about that film, because, and again, this is a film that, that Churchill wanted to boycott or stop from being presented, uh, where a, a German is presented a, as a human being. Uh, set that film up for us. It's a wonderful film. Well, Paula Pressburger wanted to do a movie during the war, very daring, which didn't simply cheer on the war effort, which said, you know, this war is a stupid game played by people who really are not that good at it. They're not in charge of it in the way officers tend to be presented in film. And they they got the idea of Colonel Blimp, a figure who had been made famous cartoons in newspapers, who is a sort of, he's a, he's an endearing man, but he's, a, but he's a chump. He's not that smart. He's trying to do his best. So they made this film, quite a long film, which extends over many decades in which Blimp, played by Roger Lifsey, grows older, grows sadder, and has, there are three women in his life, uh, all played by Deborah Kerr beautifully. And of course he has a friendship, which he began when they were young men with a German officer played by Anton Walbrook. And there is a, a moment where Walbrook is reduced. He, he, he has fought in one war honorably, but in the interim between the First and Second World Wars, Germany has changed so much, and he has become a victim of that change, where he comes to England, and there's a speech where he talks about what it's like to be a good German. That's a five-minute, I believe, uncut piece of acting. It's an extraordinary piece of work, one of the, one of the great moments in the history of war films. And as you say... Uh, Churchill, who took a big interest in films, did not want the film made because he thought it might be a little subversive, a little critical of the war spirit. And he actually blocked Powell's original attempt to have Laurence Olivier play Blimp. That's how Roger Livesey got the part because Olivier <clears throat> was sent away on some other mission. But it's a great film. And, 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 and I, uh, I think that Livesey was a much better blimp than uh, Olivier would have been. I think and, so, too. He's much warmer. He's much yeah. more emotionally involved. Well, in he's a wonderful scene. actor. He's in the, uh, you know, uh, what became Stairway, A Matter of Life and Death. Uh, right. uh, I Know Where I'm Going. All, these are all Powell films. Powell he, he's a wonderful actor. And, you know, Powell is characteristic, I think, of a generation of artists who felt the war, the Second World War in this case, was their great opportunity, their great moment. And, and the Second World War was a much more honorable war than the First World War, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean, because people believed they knew why the war was being fought. They believed the war was necessary so that there was not nearly the same kind of confusion over the purpose of the whole thing. And people went to war bravely, but with a rationale. They, 
They knew the war was going to save the world, or they hoped it was going to save the world, and they knew the world was in immense danger from fascism, but also from the the unleashing of so many uh, so many things that were happening in the technology of that time. You know, the Second World War ends with the weapon that could mm-hmm. kill everyone, which still hangs over us. And um, the two wars together, which really are the the backbone of my book, um, the, the two wars together are, a, are an imprint of the history of the 20th century. And of course, in Europe, then and now, the First and Second World Wars were really conceived of and seen and suffered by people who saw it as just a single war. And, and you know, you can argue that the state of war, the readiness for war, has not been solved, has not been alleviated and ended. And you and I and everyone involved in the world at the moment is at a readiness for war and a war that we we understand could extinguish everything. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> so so much of the films, I guess, that we saw during the war, that were produced during the war, uh, obviously had a huge uh, uh, propaganda slant to it. But in the aftermath of the war, William Wyler makes The Best Years of Our Lives, which uh, uh, even watching it today with some of the, some, I don't want to call cornball, but some of the, like the Americanist, middle America kind of value system that we see holds up very well. And here we are taking a look at the aftermath, the effect of the war on, on three people, three, three men in this small town. Uh, talk a little bit about, about this film and how, in my opinion, it's still a very important film to see. I agree with you completely. And, and it is, it should be essential in any examination of war films. And there is no combat in the film. It is simply three men coming back to a provincial city uh, and they meet because they're coming back on the same day. So we follow their three stories, Frederick March, Mm -hmm. Dana Andrews and Harold Russell. And um, Harold Russell, plays a man who has lost his hands in the war, as Harold Russell himself had, not in combat, but in a training accident. So he has hooks for hands. Mm -hmm. And Frederick March is an officer in the infantry, and Dana Andrews was a bombardier in the Air Force. And their lives have changed. Uh, and, And it's a social study of how men tried to get back into ordinary life and whether ordinary life was a possible forum for them. And of course, in hindsight, one can see it as very much a training ground for Vietnam. One of the great tragedies about Vietnam was not just what happened over there, but the the degree to which lives were warped and damaged by the experience and how people could straighten up their lives. And, you know, we lost 58,000, I think it is, in Vietnam, but there are many more people alive still whose lives have been misled and damaged and warped by that experience. 
Um, you know, George Black wrote a wonderful book. I'm looking on my shelf. I, I, I interviewed him about the aftermath of yeah. young of soldiers going back and finding out what, what they had done. But I'm telling yeah. to interrupt you, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, the huge, uh, the huge impact it's had on our, I mean, to me, uh, you could almost date the beginning of the end of America with that war. Uh, so much, that's, um, that could be another, another discussion. I think the image of those helicopters being tipped into the sea as America was getting out of Vietnam, uh, one of the indelible, mm-hmm. ambiguous images in American history. Yeah. Yeah, a, a, a terrible thing. The uh, Then we go on a, a little bit. I want to look at, if you talk about Crossfire, which is a film that I, actually, I showed this with Eddie Muller at Temple Emanuel in San Francisco and really? something yeah. on, on Jew, and uh, Robert Ryan's daughter, who we both, you know, was, was our, our guest. So she's between these two guys, he can't shut up, and she's petrified. It was very hard to get her to talk. <laughs> We're going to take her out for a couple of whiskeys afterward. But another look at the aftermath. Uh, originally, the character was homosexual. In this case, they make him Jewish. Uh, the the anti-Semitism that was, and again, this is Robert Ryan, who was a, a, a decent man in, in, in real yes. life. Yes. It, it, it's, I mean... It's a film noir. It's a murder story. Uh, you've got two good guys, Robert Mitchum and Robert Young, who are trying to work out the crime. And Ryan gives this amazing performance as a sort of ingratiating but untrustworthy anti-Semite. And, and um, it, it it's it's got that kind of brevity and economy that a lot of films in the 40s had and yet it says so much uh, about the alienation of people in an, in an institution like an army. Uh, and uh, again, it's not a war combat film, but it's a film about what war has unearthed in human nature. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We just have a couple of minutes. There. Obviously, every time we talk, we could go on and on and on, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of Zoom limited. But... Uh, something that was occurring to me as um, as I'm reading this book is I'll, I'm waiting for you to sit down and, and write this great picaresque novel, uh, uh, kind of somewhat biographical about your life and all the films that in, informed your life. Well, that's so, very nice of you to have that feeling, and I can tell you that I'm at work on it. So good. Well, well it's, you know, that's great. Uh, uh, yeah, because I, I I would just because it goes back, you know, to people like us and who are so. It, I, 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 passionate about movies and have had such an impact on our life. I mean, everything we learned, you know, I don't smoke cigarettes, but if I did, it would be part of my, my mating process, my, my courting process, you know, yeah. uh, all the music, all the songs that we learned that I sing, uh, all, all of this, everything we learned, we, we learned from watching movies. And well, that's, uh, that's the truth. And there's a, and that in, that in music, that in music. Yeah. And there's a, a huge good in that because, you know, the movies in the 20th century were not just fun, but they were a lifeline. They helped people stay alive mm-hmm. in very difficult times, not just war, but depression and many other things. Um, people don't make films like that anymore. And it's partly because there's the confidence with which the films were made. There's, you know, I mean, Casablanca is about a world 
poised on the brink of terrible things. Good, less than a minute, David. So I don't want to get you're going to get cut the off. Film, the film is made with panache and oh, fun. Absolutely. And we don't do that very well anymore, I think. Well, what, we're going to talk a little bit. I want to call you back for a couple and talk a bit off off camera because we're going to. I'm going to lose you in a second. We got to come to Paris. We got to do something together here in I Paris. Uh, and once again, the book is The Fatal Alliance. My guest, uh, once again, has been David Thompson. David, uh, thank you so much for being with us again and uh, lending your knowledge and your passion, your enthusiasm. Uh, all, always a treat. For me too. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. And subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.